0: You're listening to the Scotts Hill Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scotts Hill Baptist Church, visit our website at scottshill.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Good morning, and welcome to Scotts Hill. Those of you who are watching us online, thank you for joining us, inviting us into your home. We want to invite you into this place. We'd love for you to come and fellowship with us on Sunday mornings as we can meet together as a faith family. So glad that you can join us. For those of you, this may be your first time here. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor, and we're so glad to have you here this morning, joining us as a faith family on the campus of where Scotts Hill meets. Um, before 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 I jump in and we and start looking at our study this morning, I just want to let you know of some things that are happening in the life of Scotts Hill that are exciting. We have what we call midweek. Scotts Hill. And right now, our midweek services include a number of different opportunities. Number one, our student ministry takes place every Wednesday night. We have almost 400 students in our Crosspoint Center on Sunday nights, and we have incredible volunteers and workers. They have a great time together. Then they break out in small groups where they do their discipleship time. It's a high energy, incredibly impacting time in the life of our church. We also have a women's ministry on Wednesday nights, and a number of women get together and they're studying. God's Word. We have a men's ministry on Wednesday night as well. But what we're going to do this January, we're going to add another component to that. We want to add an opportunity for what we're called midweek children, and we're going to be bringing our children back together in a discipleship format, in a game format. But the component is actually going to be built around music and teaching them music and having opportunities for them to learn music and to display what they learn. Before for the body. That's going to be taking place in January. We want you to know that as parents, we've got it broken down into two groups. It's from four years old to fifth grade. And the way we've got it broken down, we're only allowing 40 kids in each of those groups. So it's got a cap on it to 80 kids. If you want your children to be part of this music ministry and it's going to be impacting, I believe, for for years to come, you need to go to scottshill.info, sign your kids up for this so that we can get them working towards this and that begins in January. I do want to say this to you men. I want to encourage you men who are not involved in a small group during the course of the week to join us on Wednesday nights. We're, we're regrouping, we're thinking through this thing. It is going to be an exciting time for men to challenge our men, and come January, we want to see our women involved in Bible studies, our men involved in Bible studies, our children, and our students. And that's what we're looking forward to in, on Wednesday on midweek Ministries that take place at Scotts Hill beginning in January. That was your public service announcement. Now we can get on (laughs) with it. We live in a culture where Christianity was never designed to exist in secret, to exist in a vacuum, or to be lived in the dark. Christianity has always been designed to be in the culture and in the world. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. He says to Christians, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Notice what he said, salt of the earth, light of the world. We are to be in culture. And the only way that salt can be in culture is it has to leave the salt shaker. In order for light to be in the darkness, it has to be where darkness is to expose that. And we are meant as Christians to live in the culture, to shape the culture, and to change the culture. That's what Christianity is about. That's what Jesus brings to us. And the movement of Christianity around the world is a movement that literally transforms culture. Now, how we do that has been argued for many centuries. Matter of fact, even in our own day, there's an argument going around with what's the best way to change culture. There's a group in our culture today and in our churches today that believe the best way to change culture is to first and foremost change structures and policies so that the gospel is able to be free to flourish and transform a culture. This is another group that says, no, no, no. The gospel, first and foremost, must be the transformation of individual lives. And as individual lives are transformed, then structures and policies can be changed. In other words, some people say same structure and policy first, for the gospel's freedom, or let the gospel do its work in individuals and it change structures and policies. And so in our culture today, churches are kind of divided over this issue. But, it, but it's nothing new. For centuries, there has been a debate over the impact of the gospel and culture. Matter of fact, there was many years ago, a man by the name of Richard Niebuhr wrote an incredible book called Christ in Culture. And in that book, he gives us five approaches that people use, that Christians use when it comes to impacting the culture. Let me give those to you. The first thing he says is you can have Christ against culture. That means reject the culture. The culture is irredeemable, so have nothing to do with the culture. Christ against culture is you reject it completely. The problem with that view is Jesus undermines that whole philosophy by taking on human flesh and coming into the culture to redeem it. So we don't just reject culture. The second one is this, Christ of culture. Now, Christ of culture is the mindset of let's take culture and let's accommodate it in the church and let's blend the two together. Whatever culture is doing, let's bring it into the church and let's reform it and try to use it in some way that we can bring both worlds together. The problem with that view is it diminishes the lines of clarity between what is godly and what is worldly. And the problem with that is just to accept culture and accommodated into the life of the church the problem is the great commission tells us that we are to go and make disciples of all world and if there's no need to make disciples then there's no need for the great commission so here's the third point christ above culture this is the view that christ and the culture are separated and are never to meet There's a a godly world and the spiritual world and there's the secular world. Let just each one of them do their own thing and you try to live at peace in the secular world, but let's just let the spiritual world be what it is. We have that so much in our culture already that the problem is what we learn on Sundays, we're not bringing to the workplace on Mondays. And as a result, The culture is never transformed. Here's a fourth view. Christ and culture are in paradox. In other words, you can never really bring the two together. So just try to lead people to Christ. Try to have their lives transformed with the gospel. But don't worry about the transformation of culture because they're in paradox and they will never be able to meet together. But then here's the fifth view. And it's called Christ transforming culture. The concept here is to live the gospel in such a way that the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what transcends every cultural norm. And when we live the gospel in its fullness and in its power, transformed lives always transform communities. And what it does, it does not ignore the fact that there is a godless culture. It does not just simply accept the godless culture. It doesn't separate the godless culture. And nor does it just worry about salvation but no transformation. This was the cry of Jesus. This was the cry of the disciples. This was the cry of all of the teachers in the New Testament. Because the work of Christ working through the church is that you and I are to be ambassadors of his. We're to be living in such a way that the gospel as it's lived through me is impacting my world one person at a time and then 10 people at a time and then a movement continues and culture is transformed. That's what we're called to be. You and I as the body of Christ are called to be change agents by the gospel living in us. Now we're in 1st Timothy and we've entitled this series for the church because the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy with some very prescriptive advice on how the church should function. Now we get to chapter 6. And when we get to chapter 6, he's given some very practical advice, but where's he talking about the transformation? He brings up in the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, this institution that we have seen through the ages as something that is evil, the issue of slavery. And now when he brings up this issue of slavery, it's interesting in the way that he deals with it. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to read verses 1 and 2. We're going to talk about this institution of slavery in the day of Paul and Jesus and Timothy, and then we're going to relate it to where we are today. And this has been a real challenge for me this week, as I've taken these two verses and really asking the Holy Spirit, what is it that you want me to communicate? So let's begin by reading chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy. Here's what Paul says he says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespected on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved teach and urge these things. Will you pray with me? In fact, pray for me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that your word is always relevant to any time in any culture. And today, challenge us in a way that will transform our thinking as change agents of this culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we just read about slavery. We read about masters, and we read about slaves, and Paul is giving slaves specific instructions on how they respond to their masters. Now, the obvious question that many people have when they come across this text is this question. Why isn't Paul condemning slavery? Why isn't Paul calling for a social uprising? Why isn't he calling for the slaves to rebel and overthrow their masters? Why is it that Paul seems to be so quiet when it comes to this issue of slavery? Because the Apostle Paul understands a number of things about slavery in that culture. And rather than Paul calling for the uprising of an institution, what he is calling for is how the gospel is able to make an impact in a current evil situation. Now, one thing that we have to understand about slavery in the Greco-Roman world is totally different than what we think of pre-Civil War slavery in our own country. Let me just give you some information about what slavery was like in those days. Okay, one of the things you have to understand is that in the Greco-Roman world, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. At the height of the Roman empire, 60 million slaves. One in three citizens in Rome was a slave. One third. That's like taking all the people who attend here today and you can just figure it about one third. If we got 1200 people here on campus today, 400 of you would be considered the slave class in that culture. That's how much rampant it was. But here's something that might shock you. There are many people in the Greco Roman world that preferred slavery over freedom. Because in slavery, there was a certain security. In slavery, there was a certain protection. In slavery, there were certain opportunities that may afford to you that you may not have in the culture on your own. In fact, there were so many slaves in Rome that one historian quipped, it's easier to find a slave than it is a free person in Rome. And there was a whole class of individuals who were slaves, now, how did they end up in slavery? It's a good question. People ended up in slavery in a number of different ways. Number one, some of them were prisoners of war. They were captured by an enemy, brought back, and rather than killing them, they had them work as slaves for the rest of their life. Secondly, some were condemned criminals. Those were then had jails, they had prisons, but for a lot of time, when you were condemned as a criminal, you were put to the rest of your time or to pay off your debt by being a slave and serving others. Some sold themselves into slavery because of an unpaid debt. They didn't have a social program of welfare in their culture. So many times families would sell themselves into slavery to a well-to-do family because they can't pay off a debt. And that would actually provide safety and protection for them in the midst of that. Some were victims of kidnapping. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers to a group of Ishmaelites who later sold him to Potiphar, where he ended up in prison and ultimately the prince of Egypt. But he was sold, and kidnapping was a common thing. Get this one. This is intriguing. Some were sold into slavery by their parents. By their parents. Now, I don't know if it was for missing too many curfews or or what it was, but you know what would be really interesting? Parents, this would really be a wonderful discussion with your teenagers today around the dinner table. <laughs> but they were sold into slavery because of that. And then finally, some of them were just born into slavery. They were born into slavery. Their parents were slaves. They were born in a slave household. And therefore, they their lives will become slaves. Now, you might say, wonderful, Phil. You've given great context for the world of slavery in this time. But you still don't ask the question, how did Paul really feel about it? Did Paul support slavery? Many people would say Paul supported slavery. At the least, some people would say, well, Paul really didn't have a problem with slavery. The problem is, most, a lot of times we look at when the Bible's silent, we think it's not saying anything. But a lot of times it's what the Bible doesn't say that's important. Let me give you an illustration. Let me see if I can explain this. The apostle Paul would speak of groups and then he would back them up with scripture. He'd speak of husbands loving wives. And in Ephesians chapter five, he talks about that you, a man shall not leave, his, a man. what God has joined together, let no one separate. And what does he do? He brings it back to Genesis and he brings it back to a biblical point and he brings it all the way back to the garden to prove his point. He does the same thing with children. Obey your parents for this is right in the Lord, Ephesians 6.1. And then what does he do? He brings it back to the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. In parentheses, not be sold into slavery. So, no. So he brings it back. He does this with all kinds of issues. But when he talks to slavery, he never brings it back to any principle in the Old Testament or the New Testament because there isn't one. Because God's heart was never for this institution to brutalize individuals and remove them from freedom. But what Paul does do, is really interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, in speaking to slaves, listen to what he says. You were a bondservant. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about that. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. I love this. He says, listen, if you were born as a slave, don't let that bother you. You let Jesus transform you in the midst of that institution. But if you can get your freedom, take the opportunity. You see, in this day, slaves were allowed to have an allowance, or many times they, with their skills, could do a number of different things. A lot of times, when we think that slaves just do menial labor, they don't. Many of these slaves were architects, many of these slaves were engineers. Many of these slaves were highly educated and they were responsible for teaching and tutoring in the universities. Many of them were doctors. Many of them were even for, for nurses, businessmen. The whole class of slaves were made up of all kinds of levels of opportunity. And many of these could hire themselves out make enough money, put it aside, and buy their freedom. The apostle Paul even talks to masters such as in Philemon. And he encourages Christian masters to let your slaves free that they might be brothers to you and not servants. So here's all of this. Looking at all this and reading this passage about slaves of 2,000 years ago, we could come to the place and say, okay, okay. We can see where God doesn't support it. He's allowed it to happen, but the darkness of humanity has made it a very wicked and a vile thing. But how does that relate to me today? 2,000 years later, how do I take this passage and work it in such a way that God has something to say to me at Scotts Hill today? as I prayed through this and asked the Lord to give me some wisdom in this, there are four things that stand out to me that as we look at the concept of what Paul's talking about and how does that relate to you and me today? You ready? Number one, believers are called to glorify God in all circumstances and make the gospel attractive to a lost world. Here's the first thing that we are at the forefront of our minds and our lives and our hearts. The passion of every single believer who follows Christ is to seek to glorify God regardless of the circumstances of my life and I am to live my life in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes attractive to a lost world. Notice how he says it to him. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And here's the centerpiece. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That's it. That's to be the centerpiece of our life. And then he even says to Titus, who is a contemporary of Timothy, who's pastoring in Crete, here's what Paul says to him. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That word adorn is the same word that used to decorate a Christmas tree is to beautify it. You see, the issue is not about just our circumstances. The issue for every child of God is his glory. His glory. That's why Paul says the issue here is not undermining some institution. The issue here is in the middle of some difficult, dark times. You have the opportunity to bring glory to God in the midst of these situations. And let me tell you this, it's never a matter of our convenience or our goals or our ambitions or our feelings or our likes. All of those things are to be subservient to God's glory. And for a child of God, the one way that we should live our life every single day is to constantly ask the question Father, are you glorified in this? Does this bring you glory? If it does, I will. And it doesn't matter whether you're slave or free, whether you're the bottom rung of society or the top rung of society. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether your health is great or your health is not. The goal of every single Christian is to constantly think that my goal is to glorify God and to live in such a way that the gospel is beautiful To a world that is dying. I love what the shorter Westminster catechism begins. It begins with a question that all the world wants the answer for. And here's the question. What is the chief end of man? And the answer, some of you know, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the goal. And it doesn't matter necessarily your circumstances. Listen, I know that's hard. I know it's hard going through difficult times. I know it's hard working for a difficult boss. I know it can be hard when you're struggling with issues in life and death and you're saying, this is really tough, but let me just take you to the cross. Let's think about Jesus for a moment. If Jesus was more concerned about his status on earth, he never would have taken on human flesh to be born to a poor peasant family living in a dead-end town that nobody wanted to go to And on his birth and at his circumcision, they had to offer pigeons, which was the uh, sacrifice for the poorest of culture. Jesus lived in a poor home. If Jesus were concerned about his circumstances, he never would have come. That he would have to be a carpenter and that he had to live a life that would be tough where his own people, his own town people, his own relatives rejected him. And he was condemned Unjustly. If Jesus had to give up his rights, he may not have wanted to come and he had all rights in the universe. He is the ageless creator of all things. And yet, what did he do? He laid every bit of it down for you and me. Matter of fact, Peter captures the beauty of this. He gives us the illustration and the example of what Jesus does for us. Here's what Peter says. He says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He goes on. For what credit is it? If when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus had more rights to give up than you and I will ever have. Jesus had more to suffer for than you and I will ever suffer for. Jesus was treated more unjustly than you and I will ever be treated. And then Paul says this in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here's my question. How can we have a Christ who would give every single thing for us, who would lay down every right for us, who would suffer in ways that we cannot even imagine for us and we not be willing to do the same for his glory? How can we have a Christ like that? How can we be believers like that how can we rejoice and say i'm so happy that jesus went to the grave on my behalf that he paid my penalty He, he satisfied the wrath of a holy god but don't expect me to do those things we can't have that and the thing of every believer's heart and mind should be constantly settled on his glory I wrote this down this week. It was really convicting to me. So I don't want to be the only one in this room convicted. So I'm sharing it with you today, okay? Here's what I wrote. When I'm concerned about my name, my rights, my pleasures, I am probably at my least usefulness in the kingdom of heaven. When it's all about me, it's all about my rights. It's all about my freedom. And what I've done is I've become useless in the message of the gospel and for the glory of God. The first thing we learn is we live in a broken world and people will mistreat us. But when I give glory to God in every circumstance, and when I live in such a way that people can't even understand, how can you do that? How can she do that? Man, the gospel looks so beautiful on her because we're fully submitted to bring glory to God. One of the things I've had to struggle with in my own life is this. Lord, if you get more glory from a sickness in my life, bring on the sickness. Lord, if you get more glory from a struggle in my life, bring on the struggle. And the cry of the church should be, Lord, if you get more glory by our persecution, if you get more glory by us being rejected in the culture, if you get more glory by us standing firm in our convictions and the world wants to counsel us, bring it on. Because you deserve all praise and glory. That's how culture is transformed. By bringing glory to God and living in the gospel in such a way that it becomes beautiful. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, you've taken this long on this point. But hang on. Here's the second application. Believers are to be faithful servants on their jobs and honor their employers. You see, we don't have slaves and masters. But we do have bosses and supervisors. And many of us are under the bondage, you should say, or the yoke, not the bondage, the yoke of leaders. So Paul, in speaking to slaves, is also speaking to us who work for people over us. Here's what he says. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters or bosses worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. He goes right back to that. Then he says the second part of it. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Paul is given two pieces of instruction here. And this is what it means for you and me in our culture, as we're seeking to beautify the gospel in the way we live and bring glory to God. What does that mean? Let me give you the two things. Number one, believers are to be faithful servants to employers who are not believers. Many of you work for non-believers. Even in the midst of that, you are to be faithful and discharging your responsibilities as an employee. Secondly, he says believers are to be faithful servants to employers who are believers, Now you might say, why didn't he just say be faithful employers? Why? Because there are two perspectives. Sometimes being a faithful believer on the job means that you're going to have a difficult time working for a boss. It's going to be hard. Maybe his convictions, his thoughts, his actions, the way he carries himself are different than your convictions. As long as he's not asking you to violate any principles of the words of God, you have a responsibility to listen to your boss. And sometimes it's hard. We need to be faithful in hard jobs, but sometimes we need to be faithful in easy jobs. When you have a boss who is a Christian, Sometimes we can take advantages of those. And because the job is so easy, we think we do not have to work as hard or as diligent because my boss is a Christian. He understands grace. He's going to let me come in late as many times as I want. And all I have to do is say, I'm praying for you, brother or sister. But he's saying whether it's a hard time or it's an easy time. Then Paul gives us a little bit more clarity on how we are to act on the job. Let's relate this to our work. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, only working when they're looking. As people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. He says, You work as to the Lord. In Colossians, he says the same thing, but he ends with this Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance of your reward. Here's what he's saying. Listen, Christians, we should be the best employees that anyone can ever have. We should. We should be the hardest workers that any boss can ever have. Why? Because the goal is, number one, I work as unto Jesus. My responsibility is to please him every day. My responsibility is to give my very best to him every day. And what happens when I do that, the bosses of our lives become the beneficiaries of that. I did sheet metal work for many years. And I was working in this sheet metal shop. And, and I read this verse one day, work hardly as unto the Lord. And I went, to, I went to my boss who was not a godly man at all. I sat down in his office and I said, Mr. Henry, I want you to know something. My goal on this job is to make you successful. He said, you want to raise, don't you? I said, no, sir. I am not here because I want to raise. I'm here to tell you today that my job is to make you successful. I'm going to do the very best that I can to make you successful. I'm gonna be a hard worker. I'm gonna do what you ask me to do. I'm gonna be diligent and I will not neglect my time. He said, why are you telling me this? He said, you need to know that you're my boss here, but Jesus is my boss in heaven. And before I work for you, I work for him. And when I work for him to please him, the benefits of that flows to you. He says, I think I might give you a raise. I said, Mr. Henry, don't give me a raise. Don't give me a raise. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch my life and see if that's not true. And I did. I worked hard. And then I went to him sometime later. He did give me a raise, by the way. I went to him sometime later, and and I accepted it. (laughs) I went to him sometime later, and I said, Mr. Henry, God's called me in a ministry, and I need to go to school. I said, but I need a part-time job. Is there any way that you could possibly let me work part-time? He opened up his drawer. He pulled out a key, and he slid it across the desk. He says, that's yours for the building. You come anytime you want. I said, you mean even when you're closed? He says, anytime you like, because I know that when you walk on this building, you're going to do what you need to do. And I did. And I worked to school and I would come in the afternoons and sometimes they're all gone. And I did my work order and I locked up and went home. When I graduated from college, I went to his office. I said, Mr. Henry, I want to thank you. I said, I finished my degree in college after five years because uh, I was having to work through it. And I paid for all my own school. And I said, now I'm going to seminary and this will be my last month working with you. And I said, before I go, I want to thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to work here. And this degree that I've earned, you have some investment in that. And he just sat there and started weeping. Then he said to me, he says, why are you different? I said, let me tell you about that, Mr. Henry. Now he knew I was a believer and I got to share the gospel with him in his office. And here's what happened. My commitment to being a good employee demonstrated the gospel working through me. And he saw the beauty of that. And it was attractive. And it made an impact in his life. Not to mention the number of guys that I've led to faith in Christ through the years as I worked in that shop. That's it. That's the gospel working through you. And I want to tell you, when you're an employee and you claim to be a Christian, you're lazy, that reviles the gospel. When you're a Christian and you're working for an employee and you steal, that reviles the gospel. When you're a Christian employee and you just simply want to do what you can to get by... All of that is reviling to the gospel. And people who hear you say that you're a Christian and watch you live some way contrary to the message of the gospel undermines the work of Christ on that job and in the culture. That's what we're called to do. You see, at the end of the day, you're pleasing Christ above all things. And you're seeking for the gospel to be a real lived out thing in your life that people see and not just here. All right, if you're a boss, you ain't off the hook. Here's the third thing. Believing employers are to model the gospel before their employees. I love what he says in Ephesians chapter six, verse nine. Masters, do the same thing to them. Talking about the slaves and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him between you or them if you're a christian employer respond in such a way that those who work for you see the gospel lived out in you i, I just pulled some of these together real quick let me just give you some ideas employers The employer's mandate is to reciprocate. Do the same thing for them. If they respect you, you respect them. It is only by God's grace and sovereignty and blessings where he's put you where you are. And in that, you celebrate that and glorify God in that. But yes, you honor those who are below you. So secondly, the employer's method, eliminate. Give up threatening. Now, it's one thing for you to have to rebuke an employer when he or she is not doing the job or to write them up and things like that. You want to be fair, but don't threaten them. Be gracious, be kind, be like Christ to those who are working for you. And the employer's motives appreciate knowing that both their master's and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality between. So bosses, you're not off the hook. Because you have a master that you will give an account to. And all those who work under you, you are to conduct yourself. And I'm talking about managers. I'm talking about CEOs. I'm talking about people who are over people live in such a way that they see the gospel lived out in you and the way you lead them in the way you're kind to them in the way you celebrate them and in a way that you are grateful for them. That's where transformation takes place. So, we're to give God glory in every circumstance and beautify the gospel. We're to be hard workers when we're on the job. And we are to be kind to our workers who are on the job. But here's the last point and I'm going to close with this. The gospel's transformation in my life is to inform me on how I am to impact the culture for good. The gospel's transformation in my life informs me about every issue in culture. Every issue. There is no issue where the gospel does not want to impact. It is as we model the gospel and seek to glorify God in all things that we are able to make an impact in the lives of other people. It begins in your home. The gospel informs me on how I am to love my wife. The gospel informs me in how I am to raise my kids. The gospel informs me in how I am to love extended family, in-laws, and those beyond. it. The gospel informs me in how I'm to love my neighbor. The gospel informs me in how I am to react in my community. The gospel informs me from everything on the playground to the arena of politics. And here's the problem with Christianity today. A cultural Christianity will take joy that Jesus died for them, but wants nothing to do to be part of a transformation process. Just give me the blessing. Don't expect any commitment from me. But serious Christianity says this. Not only do I rejoice in what Jesus did and he gave glory to the Father. Everything I do Every choice I make, I want the gospel to impact my life in such a way that when I do those things, cultural changes happen as a result. You know what happened in Greco-Rome? The Christian slaves were transforming the culture by living the gospel. Their masters were coming to faith in Christ because of the slaves living the gospel. The structures and the policies at Rome soon began to change, and slavery was abolished, not by an insurrection or agitation, but glorifying God and living the gospel. In the UK, slavery was evil, but a man by the name of William Wilberforce 50 years gave himself to the abolition of slavery. And he began to share with his friends. On one occasion, he is in jail and his friend comes to him. He said, my dear friend, William, what are you doing in jail? And William said, my dear friend, why are you not in here with me? And after 50 years, the abolition of slavery in the UK was removed. And then you come to America and with people like Cotton Mathis, and so many other preachers, slavery became abolished, not simply by a vote, but by the transformation from the gospel. The power that we have in the gospel is unspeakable. The power that you have in the gospel in your family. The power that you have in the gospel on your job. The power that you have in the gospel where you live, where you work. The power that you have in the gospel when you vote Tuesday. All informed by the teaching of God's word. That brings transformation. And people begin to look at your life and say... Why are you so different? We have an opportunity this Tuesday, as Jim prayed, to go into the voting booths. Many of us have already voted early. I did. I wanted my little sticker early. I wanted want to be the first one to get that. I all day. Went to bed with it that night. No. I voted. And if you're a believer in the culture, it's not only your privilege, but it is your responsibility to vote. But here's what I want to say to you. Let the gospel inform your choices. No political party has all the truth. No one political party has all the best policies and structures. No party is perfect. But I will tell you this. When a political party has as its major platform the vicious protection of murdering children, how does the gospel Inform you to support that. Some of you might think, oh, whoa, whoa, you're crossing a line. No, 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 I'm telling truth. And let me say this as a child of God, one day you will stand and give an account for what you did. And I want to know how can you stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for supporting a platform that murders the most innocent among us? How can you do that? Here's a bigger question. If you're a child of God and you're seeking to glorify God in your, your actions, how can you do that? If you're a child of God and you're talking about the gospel beautifying and transforming lives, how can you do that? And let me tell you, don't play the Gavin Newsom card by quoting scripture of Jesus and you're trying to use that to defend it. That is the most heretical hell thing I've ever heard in my life. And don't build a smoke screen and say, oh, I just care about women. Don't you know what abortion does to the spiritual and physical struggles of women who have had them? And don't use a smokescreen. (sighs) That it's not a living being. You tell the Lord Jesus that one day. Because here's the thing, and I'm being passionate about this. I'm not talking about parties. I'm talking about truth. I'm talking about positions and what I want to challenge you in is how does the gospel inform you on truth? And as a child of God, where will you stand? Not just here, but one day before Him. So we can look at this whole thing of slavery and say, oh, it doesn't mean anything to me because we don't live in that culture. Is your life ultimately and predominantly for the glory of God, is not Pursue that. Let the gospel be beautified in the way you live. And you will be a change agent. If you're here today and you're not a believer, listen to me carefully. Maybe you're not a child of God. You're here, somebody brought you here, and you may not really like what you've heard today, But here's what I want you to leave with. That Jesus loved you so much that he died in your place. That he loved you so much that he laid down everything for you. That he loved you so much that he doesn't care whether people cancel him or not. He'll never be canceled. He's the king of kings. He's not going to resign and you can't impeach him. He's forever. But he loves you. He loves you. Even though you may not agree With what I've said, he loves you. His death and his resurrection demonstrates that. And even now, he knows you. And he's the only one who has the answers for your life and the freedom for your soul. And I want to encourage you to consider Jesus. Glorify God this week. Work hard on your job for the glory of the gospel. Treat your workers like you would treat Jesus himself. Let the gospel inform every decision of your life for his good, for his glory, and for the good of culture. Let's pray. Father, I've done what I know to do. And Father, as you've convicted my own heart this week, I pray that hearts that are convicted here today would not just be something that we say, wow, that really convicted me, but Father, that would bring us to a place of brokenness and say, for your glory, for your glory. May we live in such a way that we beautify the gospel and that people will see those people are different. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at Scotshill.org slash steps Till next time.